You're listening to the podcast This Slavery, episode two, Dainty Cakes and Heartaches. Ethel Carney wrote This Slavery in the early decades of the 20th century. Lancashire was fizzing with revolution. New parties, new MPs, strikes, marches, meetings, ideas. In Great Harwood, Ethel was right in the middle of the action. Her book describes a simmering class war threatening to boil over. In part two, the weavers are on strike for better wages. Let the driven shuttle fly in and out the mildewed weft. Let the brittle threads and dry mocking taunt the weaver's deft. Let them struggle as they will, bended back and aching sight, till the engine crash the mill. What's corrupt will ne'er weave right. If this slavery were a more conventional romance, then Hester's story would have come to an end with part one. Reader, I married him. But Ethel uses Hester's marriage to expose the cruel waste and injustice in the lives of working women. Hester must accept either the drawn-out suicide of factory work or take the only other job on offer, that of wife to a man with money. This is something that Jack Baines does not understand for all his massive political education. He dares to accuse Hester of selling out by marrying Sanderson, a wealthy capitalist. She's having none of it. At least I've given my children something near childhood than that which I got. At least I have protected them from that which hurt me. At least I have had the joy, the glory, the wonder and the flowers of motherhood, not just the crown of thorns. At least I have not had to pinch and scrape to set Sanderson his food, lying and dodging and going short myself. At least I have reduced my slavery from being a slave of many to being a slave of one. Hester is the compliant and delicate sister. That's why Sanderson married her. So it comes as a real surprise when Hester's arguments are the most radical in the whole book. Jack's union want a wage increase. As far as Hester is concerned, that just confirms the capitalist system. Hester wants to tear it all down. You who hold aside your garments, believing I've sold myself for a mess of pottage, you of the virtue who attack capitalism and yet confer with its masters on mere questions of wages when you should be advocates of freedom, of freedom. In what way have I compromised more than you? Tell me that. Are you trying to put a higher price on slavery or wipe it out altogether? Tell me that. Jack has no answer and asks her, what he should do? Nothing. You were always doing nothing. Always bargaining for percentages like the bosses. But I never had any opinions that were worth anything. Women never have. So long as our hair is nicely put up, so long as we attend to the things between the four walls, so long as we will continue to breed children, whether they are to be boss or slave, that's all you care. So long as we make a neat job of either bosses' houses or slaves' house, that is enough. 
You ought to be prepared to do anything to change the lives of women and children, even though you lay down your own lives to do it. Instead of which you were trying to get 5%. 5%! Ethel's message is clear. There's no point in a revolution if there's no revolution for women. And radical men better wake up to that fact. Ethel continues to use Hester as a giant killer, and her next target is religion. Throughout this slavery, the church has always appeared as a pillar of support for the bosses. When Hester's delicate little boy is dying, Sanderson calls a priest. Hester is not comforted, but furious. I cannot permit you to administer what you call a sacrament and what I call a burning lie and an ignoble sham. It is a lie, a lie, an eternal lie. Your religion is a lie. 2,000 years, 2,000 years, and all it has achieved has been to keep the poor the poor in their places under the feet of the rich. I am not brave. I never was very brave, but so far at least I am resolute. My child who dies unsmirched in mind by this rotten social order needs no sacrament. His mother's arms are the sweetest heaven he has known. Hester and Mrs Martin are living an indoor life of luxury, wearing silks and furs and jewels. Sanderson regularly entertains the other industrialists and their wives, and Hester must act as hostess. It's a far cry from potato pie at Matty's. Have another cup of tea, Mr Findale, Hester asked. Uh, please, do have one of these cakes. They're charming, exquisite. Uh, thanks awfully. These cakes are simply delicious, cried Mrs Dawson. You must give me the recipe, Mrs Sanderson. And outside the drawing rooms of the rich, the poor are starving. There's a wonderful eyewitness quality to Ethel's work. Some scenes are fabulously cinematic. Only someone who was part of that everyday life could describe it with such authenticity and such love. Like a procession of ghosts past the first stragglers, mothers carrying blanket-rolled children under their shawls stumbled along, dodging the drifts. The stronger carried also a bundle of the child's clothes, the weaker made two journeys of it, child or clothes, or clothes and child. The oldest workers were also out earliest, being unable to hurry in such weather. Old women wheezed and coughed nervously, plodding along by the snow-blown walls, stocking tops over their clogs to make a fall less probable. Little half-timers, their faces covered by their mother's shawls, were steered along through the cold, by quarter to six, the streets were one long procession, along both flagstones and down the middle of the road. The whole scene was like a night scene. Lamp, moon, snow and the black silhouette of the street-wide procession. No painter had ever painted it. This wasn't worth painting. This was only Lancashire going to its slavery. As well as a poet's eye, Ethel also has a singer's ear. The book is ringing with music and sound. Workers playing violins and pianos, Sally Army Band, strikers whistling and singing socialist anthems. Even nature sings. They heard the gurgle of the stream, the sigh of the pines, the echo like the sea. 
The grasses murmured. Ethel tries to create for us a soundscape of working Lancashire, making music from industry. From inside Hester's luxurious drawing room, she and her sweet son Stephen create fanciful images from the sounds of the workers outside. The sounds were always alike. First came the five o'clock hooter, mumbling and growling. Then the wagons came out from under the shed, groaning over the pavements. Then there was a silence between and the lamplighters gathering at the house corner talking before they went home. But it was the feet he liked best to listen to, beginning very slowly. Click, clack, click, clack, like slow music, till it beat up to a great chorus with a deep iron sound in its heart, like some giant striking with a hammer on an anvil of steel. Hester and Stephen make up a song about the feet, but that's not the only song that Hester composes. Ethel knew from experience that a song is like a flag. People rally round it. Hester's song becomes the striker's only weapon. Nightly, hundreds of marchers sing in defiance as they pass the drawing rooms of the rich. And the stuff they're singing, some fool or other is writing them words to old tunes and the damn kids are singing it in the streets. Crude stuff, but happens to be a bulletin of all we're doing behind the scenes. I heard them singing about the black legs coming as I came along. Good God! Then they heard the voices from the street, the voices of the starving. Must be a lot of them. Yes, there's a meeting. They sat listening. The starving were singing in bass, treble and contralto. The words echoed into the room. When the bosses plan to goad the strikers into violence, it's Hester's song that warns them about the waiting militia. Away at the head of the procession, orderly even in its chaos, words were travelling along the ranks and being taken up along the line. Nearer and nearer they came, louder and louder they swelled. It mixed in with the beat of the feet and above them. It was the latest bulletin. They're bringing the militia, if we don't mind what we do. We're picketing tonight. It's heart-wrenching to see the risks Hester takes to help the cause and smuggle information out to the Union. Money had never been anything to her. She'd sought for freedom and found there was none. But at least one must do all one could. It was difficult to breathe. Weakness, dreadful, frustrating, hindered her. She wiped the sweat of fatigue from her forehead and panted under the eiderdown. But in her heart was white shining peace, for at least one could go down fighting. Her husband is an impatient ignorant bully. Rachel tells Jack, She's my sister, and you could cover her with jewels from head to foot. She'd still belong to the folk. She hasn't brute courage, but she's a courage that can defy brute courage. Ever seen Sanderson in a rage? He'll murder a Jack if he finds out. The book becomes as tense as a thriller as Hester takes more and more risks as she gets weaker and weaker. She stealthily set her foot to the floor, trying her strength. 
Sandy has said he will be at the mill all night. How loathsome to be driven to plan and scheme and deceive in order to be true to the best that was in her. She opened Sandy's desk, lit the lamp. All the life force that was in her concentrated on that task. She was just putting the papers back when she heard the key turn in the front door. Panic seized her. It was not lack of moral courage, it was lack of physical courage. Sandy was whistling, rule Britannia, and he was coming. She moved towards the desk, put back the papers and closed the desk with sweat on her brow. The copied messages she thrust in her slippers. Sandy was almost here. She threw herself down on the couch, rubbing her cheeks to give them colour. She felt sick and hysterical and nearing collapse. With Hester becoming the voice of politics, what has become of Rachel, the activist? Rachel is still out there with the strikers and the picketers and with Jack Baines. Dainty Cakes and Heartaches is a Pendle Radicals podcast commissioned by Mid Pennine Arts in partnership with Lancashire County Council and Libraries Connected. Pendle Radicals is part of the Pendle Hill programme, supported by national lottery players through the Heritage Fund. This podcast is part of the BBC Novels That Shape the World project, funded by Arts Council England. A huge thank you to all involved.